This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Virginia only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 532 3500. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the Mike Francesa Podcast on this November 22nd. For the day before Thanksgiving, and I want to wish everybody a very, very happy and safe uh, and joyous Thanksgiving holiday, the great American holiday, family, football, and feasting. So enjoy yourself uh, with all the football and all the food and all the company and everything, and don't get in too many political battles in this time of incredible uh, polarization. You know, as those of you who have followed me through the years, you know, one of my uh, great interests uh, is JFK. Um, I only had two idols that I would call idols in my life. Um, one was JFK and one was Mickey Mantle. And obviously their heyday was the same time. I have uh, looked at JFK uh, and examined his uh, life and presidency and everything from 1948, uh, from his days in Congress, through being a senator, through running for, uh, in 56, going after the uh, VP against his father's wishes, and 60, the uh, campaign which changed America in how it was set up and the TV importance and the commercials and the debates and everything, uh, and then his presidency, which was cut short as we know, on uh, November 22nd, 1963. I am not, repeat, I'm not in any way an assassination geek or an assassination theorist. I despise anything to do with the assassination. I don't watch assassination shows. I don't read or collect. I collect Kennedy books. Uh, I do not collect any books about the assassination. Um, I hate that part of uh, the Kennedy legacy. I hate the cottage industry it has become. I've heard every theory, as have you, you know, from the military industrial complex to the uh, quote-unquote mafia, to the uh, Lyndon Johnson, to, I mean, I can give you so many wacky theories. I don't care. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear your theory. I don't want to hear anybody else's theory. I don't want to get involved. Uh, I'm, I'm the farthest thing from Oliver Stone when it comes to that. I just don't want to get into it. I have my own thoughts on the subject, but that's what they will remain, my thoughts. And what we do know is that America was changed that day and dramatically uh, in what was a very, very turbulent time. The first of three uh, enormously pivotal and damning assassinations, the other two obviously being of uh, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy um, five years later. But I don't get into that. What I do get into, though, is 
his life and legacy, and it is an amazing one. And it's one that I just thought about, and that's why I thought of this podcast. Because I was recently getting something at, at the supermarket. And yes, you know, once in a while I do run to the supermarket for my wife. And uh, I've met f- plenty of folks there, and they're all very nice. Uh, but you know how you have the magazines that are at the newsstand? Well, there was still a new Kennedy. Actually, there were two. There was one about Jackie, and it was one in a different magazine about JFK. And I'm thinking, how amazing is the longevity of the appeal that he and Jackie and the whole Kennedy aura is still vibrant 60 years after his death? Not five years or 10 years, but 60 years later. Kennedy books still come because they still sell. There's always new books coming. Uh, None of them are very important. Very few of them are good. There's a couple. Um, I don't think there has been a great Kennedy biography, and I'm sure not capable of of producing it. Um, I think there have been some pretty good ones. I think Dalek's book is good. Um, I think uh, there have been some examinations of his presidency that are very interesting. But I don't think there has been that great book written about his life. And I think there will be one day. Uh, now, it might not rival McCullough's Truman, which not only to me is the greatest, and I read biographies. That's my thing. I don't read a lot of fiction. Um, I read biographies. I read a lot of history. I read a lot of, about presidency, especially modern presidency. I don't like old stuff. I don't like, I don't go back to the days of the, you know, I don't go back to the 1700s and 1800s. I don't care. Um, but I care about FDR and I care about Truman and I care about those times and I care about, you know, anything going forward from there. Um, and the Truman book, as I have told you, is not only the best biography ever written. And I've always told you, if you're ever looking for a book, the best sports biography ever written, I think, was When Pride Still Mattered, the Lombardi biography by David Marinus, I think is the best sports biography I've ever read. Um, and is just a brilliant book. But Truman by McCullough, which is an, an enormous book, it's a thousand pages, maybe even more, um, is not only the best biography I've ever written, ever, ever read. It's the best book I've ever read. It is that brilliant. I mean, it won the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, he is an historian. He's written two noted biographies, that of Adams and, of course, Truman. But, and Truman's life and presidency is just an incredibly absorbing time because so much was thrust on him, as was thrust on JFK in such a very short amount of time. I mean, you think about the issues that were presented to JFK, okay? He walked in on the Bay of Pigs, which had been put together under Eisenhower, and that turned into a total flop and a total failure, of which he had culpability. Um, You had the Cuban Missile Crisis. You had the threat of a nuclear war. You had to watch that play out. You had civil rights which was so 
unbelievably big and so pivotal a time from the Freedom Riders to what went on to the March on Washington to all the different things that went on in that area and what was carried on by LBJ afterwards, which a lot had to do with LBJ. I mean, listen, he had a Congress that was going to do what he wanted because they were so still caught up in the Kennedy assassination and felt so badly about it. But also, he was such a brilliant manipulator of the legislative branch, probably the most powerful person ever in that venue. He knew every trick. He had friends on all sides, and he obviously had Richard Russell until the passing of the Voting Act and the Civil Rights Act that changed, obviously, and really changed the South completely and cost him a lot of his old friends in Congress and in the Senate, especially Richard Russell. Um, We're talking then about Johnson, not of Kennedy. But Kennedy had the space program and many of the things that came across his desk at a crazy pivotal time, which the 60s became, and then, of course, Vietnam, which he didn't start, but he did escalate. He did not escalate it nearly to the point that Johnson did. In Johnson's view, it ruins his life and ruins his presidency. There is great debate over what Kennedy would have done. You'll have people who were on his side and his closest people uh, who would tell you that he whispered to them that after he got reelected, after he was finished running against Goldwater and waxing him, which he would have done, um, in one of the, probably the biggest landslide ever, which is what it was anyway, but um, that he was going to pull out of Vietnam. You hear that from that side. But remember, he listened to General Maxwell Taylor, who was very close to Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy named one of his children after Maxwell Taylor. Um, I'm not sure that's the case. Plus, I don't think he wanted to cut bait. I think he thought Vietnam was very important, but I don't think he would have treated Vietnam the same way. I think he would have, I don't think he would have pulled and run from Vietnam in my estimate, but I don't think he would have escalated it with manpower. I think he would have had a different approach, a much more subtle approach because he was a very nuanced thinker. You can see that from the Cuban Missile Crisis on forward. He was a very deliberate, very nuanced thinker. And he has been painted especially by two of his people, one who he wasn't particularly close to, but he wanted as an historian to follow his presidency and be part of his presidency, and that was Arthur Schlesinger Jr. who wrote the 1,000 Days book and wanted very much to paint Kennedy as a very, very liberal president, but he wasn't. And he didn't see him as that liberal, but he wanted to portray him that way. And then Ted Sorensen, who was not only JFK's confidant and friend, but also his main speechwriter. And people will tell you his ghostwriter on many things. Whether Kennedy wrote profiles and courage or not, I don't care. See, I never damn, I never get into these conspiracies. Whether he wrote Why England Slept, whether he wrote, but remember this, Kennedy was a great lover 
of literature, a great lover of the written word. His first thing he thought was that when his older brother was going to be in politics before Joe died, he thought he was going to buy and run a newspaper. He loved to write. He loved to read. He read newspapers before anything. And if anybody touched his New York Times or touched his Wall Street Journal or touched his newspapers before they were laid out in the morning, God forbid. I mean, that's how angry he got about it. You know, nobody touching newspapers. You don't want to read them after somebody took them apart. Well, he wanted his papers all lined up and his secretary lined them up every morning and he had his breakfast and sat in the bathtub because he always had a bad back, as you know, and he read his newspapers every morning, religiously. He was very much into literature, as was Jackie. JFK's favorite poem, as a matter of fact, quite ironically, was I Have a Rendezvous with Death, which he had many rendezvous with death. He was uh, given last rites on three different occasions before Dallas because he was a very sickly young man and obviously with different things, including some things during the war uh, that he almost died on numerous occasions. And he was, you know, at times very frail and very gaunt. And, you know, that was a big part of his life. And he was in infirmed and in bed for a long time as a youngster on a couple of occasions and as an adolescent. And he loved to read. And he read everything. So he was very, very much taken by the written word. He was very much a student of literature. He loved to write and he loved it. And you know, he wanted to write his, he was already preparing histories, oral histories. Evelyn Lincoln, the secretary, was keeping a daily book. He wanted Schlesinger to keep notes because he wanted to write his memoirs when he left the presidency. Uh, he was, that was the first thing he was going to do. Remember, he was a wealthy man. He had a trust fund of $10 million at the time, which is, you know, probably $90 million now. So he had an extensive, he didn't even carry money. Um, he didn't deal with money very much or what things cost. But ironically, he was not a crazy spender as a president, which is what leads us to this whole theory now. You know, because people talk about what he would have done in Vietnam. And I, again, that's open to debate. I don't think he would have pulled out and ran like everyone else says. He, like a lot of people say he would have. I don't think he would have, but I think he would have handled it differently and more and far more smartly than it was handled. It was handled terribly. And let's be honest, the generals lied. So that's part of it too. Number two, he was a very different president than people think he was. He, I always say if Kennedy was alive today, he would not be a Democrat. I don't even think Harry Truman, who was more liberal than Kennedy in his approach to many things, I don't even think Harry Truman would be in what we think of Democrats now. And listen, I have no, I'm very independent, okay? I think I vote more Republican than Democrat more often, but I vote on the person. And I take each issue separately. So I don't have any steadfast rules where I have a doctrine where I'm always on that side of the fence. I go back and forth based on what I think is the right call for the person or the issue. But I think both parties right now are awful. They're disgraceful because I think they both have been completely rodeoed by the extremists to the right all the way 
and to the left all the way. So I think the parties, the Democratic and the Republican Party, are in terrible shape because they have been captured by the extremists on both sides. And those in the middle, which is where most of America lives, doesn't know what to do. And we're in that, we're in that problem right now, completely in that problem right now. So I think that JFK clearly was much more in line with far more conservative thought, which leads me to this book that was the last book I've written, which I think is a book that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Because let's be honest, it's a subject that not many people are going to jump on. But I look for the books and I, I read them. And the best book I've read in recent years is this book by this writer, Ira Stahl, JFK conservative. And his point is that the Democratic Party always puts JFK up as this liberal lion, as the icon of the Democratic Party, when really, if you looked at him today based on what he practiced, he would not even be a Democrat. He would be far more in line with, say, a Ronald Reagan. And Ira makes the argument, and brilliantly in the book, and the book is by uh, Houghton uh, Mifflin Harcourt, uh, that the direct descendant in terms of practice, in terms of policy, in terms of thought to JFK is Ronald Reagan. It's not LBJ. LBJ was far more liberal and LBJ wanted the great society. He didn't feel he got everything accomplished because Vietnam got in the way. It cut his presidency short because he didn't run again. He had been in the White House, obviously, one full term and the rest of the term he served before that. Just as Truman didn't go for that extra four years, J uh, Lyndon Johnson didn't go for those years. He was not well. Vietnam had killed him, but he also had an irrational fear of Bobby Kennedy, too, which was out there. But Bobby had gone extremely to the left because of Vietnam and had gone way left to where he was when he was in the JFK administration and where he was when he was growing up. I mean, he worked for Senator McCarthy to go back years to show you how far his transition was. But to get back to JFK, he clearly was in practice in those days, a Democrat, yes, but a very conservative one who believed in fiscal responsibility. He hated economic waste. He didn't want to be a wild spender. He wanted a balanced budget. And his tax cut that he put forth and, and got through fostered one of the greatest economic expansions in the history of this country. So he cut taxes. He was anti-communism. He was for military strength. He wanted to spend money on the military. He was for military strength. He was completely anti-communist. He believed that very much the individual had liberties that were given to him, not by the state, but by, by God. He was religious in his practice, more religious than you think, despite his habits, which, let's be honest, he was an incredibly uh, wild womanizer, which we know. He also 
did an insane amount of drugs because of all his maladies. He, I mean, he was taking, if you go down the list, it's like, what are these? He was taking like 40 different things. He was not well, but he was able to get by with the bad back and was a very active president and obviously has been able to keep this mystique and appeal alive and vibrant for 60 years. Now, a lot of that, a lot of that has to do with Jackie who created Camelot. Let's be honest. She was the keeper of the flame. She was the one who wanted to put forth the Kennedy legacy with JFK. And she did it not in strong fashion, but in utterly, utterly brilliant fashion. She created this Kamina image, which out of air, which there was nothing true about it. He did not sit there and listen to records on his little, you know, phonograph. He did not, while he read or went to bed, listen to Camelot. He did not do any of that stuff, but she built this image of this shining moment. Now, he did talk about the city on the hill, which, if you remember, was adopted by another guy when he ran for president. And that guy was Ronald Reagan, who talked about that shining city on the hill. And if you go back and look at Reagan and his speeches when he ran for president, he brings up many times that I am a direct descendant of John F. Kennedy. And it just shows how far the Democratic Party has strayed. That was when he ran for president. Think about how long ago that is. George Bush incorporated things that Kennedy believed in. Ronald Reagan was the direct descendant. I mean, and Ira makes this point in the book and does it in brilliant fashion. And he is 100% accurate. It depicts his presidency and what he really was, which was a Democrat, yes, but an incredibly conservative one in old time Democratic thought and practice, not like we have now. And it just shows that when he is considered the direct, you know, the, the guy that was followed by, say, Clinton or Barack Obama or any of the Democratic presidents, the truth of the matter is they were not direct descendants of Kennedy. They were far to the left of his practices. But Ronald Reagan, as the pride and joy of the right, the pride and joy, they, they're, they're absolute poster guy the president they love the most and an incredibly effective president. As was JFK in historical terms. I mean, if you look at the voting, JFK usually comes in somewhere between eighth and 10th as the most successful presidents. Eighth to 10th, which is pretty good in modern times. Reagan comes in usually just a couple of slots after him. You know who's before him. You know who the guys at the top are. Obviously, Lincoln's one. And then you can figure out who's at the top. But the bottom line is he usually comes in somewhere between eight, nine, or ten, right in there. And is he lionized in death? Absolutely. Anybody would be. And that's what's been kept alive because he never got old. So all we have is a youthful vision of him, just like we have of Marilyn Monroe or Elvis Presley, because they didn't get old. I know Elvis got a little distorted at the end, but the point of the matter is he didn't get old, old. And we didn't see, you know, Marilyn Monroe walking around with one of these awful facelifts. We remember her as she was. And in her prime, 
And the same thing with JFK. We remember him in his prime because he was struck down in his prime and he was a young president. And by now standards where we're going to basically prop up 80 year olds to, you know, to be president, he became president in his forties. Youthful. Had a baby a month before he took office. Had babies in the white house. Had that photogenic family. And obviously all that went with it, which is why we still remember him. Well, you'll flick on the TV tonight on this day, Thanksgiving Eve. And if you want to watch shows on Kennedy, they'll be on. Unfortunately, a lot of them will deal with the assassination and look at the assassination through this eyes or this view. And, and I can't go there. I'm done. If it's an assassination show, I'm done. If it's a regular Kennedy show, I watch it. But I'm telling you, if you care about such things, and I know most of you don't, and this is just something that is one of my real hobbies and has been one of my interests for many, many years. I collect Kennedy books. I have all the old ones. I keep new ones as long as they don't deal with the assassination. And I'm not into these photo books or anything like that. I, uh, I want an examination of his presidency or of him or something like that. And that's what I got. And this book, which probably, I don't know what it sold. It probably didn't sell a whole lot of copies. But it's, it's really well done. It is superbly researched. It is superbly written. And the argument he makes, not only do I agree with it, but it is so strong, it is obvious. And... I think the reason I not only bring it up is because it's on this 60th anniversary of his death that we still think about this family and this legacy and this president so often and is discussed so often that we should try to get back politically to some more middle-of-the-road, moderate thinking, because what he was was a Democratic president who didn't stray all the way to the left, wasn't pulled to the left, as Democrats have been since. And a lot of that started with Vietnam, because everything pulled, you became an anti-war guy in the late 60s as Bobby went that way and McCarthy went that way and McGovern went that way. And that moved it, and Vietnam did such damage to the core of this country and separated this country so dramatically in the late 60s that it took a long time, not until Reagan was it put back together. And obviously Nixon did it with Watergate too. But when you realize that guys like Nixon were much bigger spenders than Kennedy was, Kennedy was much more moderate in his approach. He did not want to spend. He did not want to waste. He wanted to be aggressive. He wanted to be aggressive in space flight. He said, let's get to the moon by the end of the century. And amazingly, we did. We can argue Vietnam till we are blue in the face about how he would have handled it. None of us know for sure, but I have my own approach, as I said. But the fact is, what we need is a guy like him who put Republicans in positions of authority who put Republicans in his cabinet. Yes, he won a razor-thin election, and I think that influenced them. But also, he knew that business had to be dealt with. And he was not a pro-business guy. 
by nature, despite his being very rich. He had never worked a day in his life, which we know. He was a spoiled kid. And I think very much a spoiled kid. But while he was immoral in his day-to-day behaviors, he was incredibly moral in big picture items of how the world should work and how the country should work and how the government should work. He was incredibly moral. While on a singular basis, he was extremely immoral. Puzzling, maybe. Contradicting, maybe. But that's what he was. But it's, I think, a lesson that we learned with Kennedy, that we learned with Ronald Reagan, who was an incredibly popular and impressive and efficient president. Common sense, more moderate in an approach and one that blends the good that is offered by both parties. And if we can ever get back into that middle ground where a Kennedy operated or a Reagan operated, we would be on our way to recovery because right now we are teetering on the brink because of this polarization because we're all the way out here on the right edge and we're all the way out here on the left edge. And it's, it's knocking, basically just destroying the inner core of both parties. And we need someone who wasn't taken by the edges but moved more to the middle and did a great job doing that. And both did talk of that shining city on the hill, which is what government's supposed to be. And somehow we need on this Thanksgiving to get back there. That should be the thought of the 60th anniversary, not whether or not, you know, Giancana and Marzana and, and, and Marzano and Giancana and uh, all the mafia heads got him, or whether or not the Joint Chiefs got him, or whether or not LBJ put together a plot in Texas to get him, or down the line and down the line, or Lee Harvey or Castro or wherever you want to go. Who cares? We know he died that day. That was the criminal part. That was the awful part, that we lost the leadership we would have had through 1968, and it would have been a very different country. Would it have been perfect? I'm sure not. Would it have been better? I am sure absolutely. Because this was, the bullets fired that day were the first crack in a crack that became an absolute massive, massive hole that could not be filled up for years and years and years. The split became enormous in this country through those Vietnam years. Think about what went on in the cities in the late 60s, both in terms of what went on in Chicago with Daly and the police and what went on in the inner cities at a time when we were trying or rightfully trying to really overcome, you know, a century or more than a century of wrong thinking. 
and create inequality in this country that is still far from perfect today. We understand that. We, I mean, when you look where we were, you look at people getting their heads bashed in or being attacked by, you know, dogs and hoses and everything else in the 60s to where we are today, we've made great strides. We're not there yet. But that's an argument for another day. The point is, you know, right now, as you got, as everyone sits down to their Thanksgiving table, if it, if it, if the subject turns to politics, there will be an argument. You mentioned Trump's name; it's an argument. You mentioned Biden's name; it's an argument. You mentioned anything; it's an argument, and usually a heated one. And if families are divided on Thanksgiving, what does that mean for where the rest of the country is? Not good. So we need someone who's a visionary who can get back to taking the strength of both and then leading from somewhere in the middle. That's the message. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. 